This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. On March 9th, 1993, the 29-year-old silent twins, June and Jennifer Gibbons, were finally going to be free. Eleven years ago, they'd pleaded guilty to petty arson and theft, and, due to their inexplicable silence, sent to Broadmoor Psychiatric Hospital. Now, the two women were finally leaving the high-security facility. They were notorious in the United Kingdom for their bizarre dual psychosis. For most of their lives, the twins had refused to communicate with anyone but each other. They moved in synchronicity with perfect precision, took turns eating each day, and wouldn't even acknowledge most other people. During their years at Broadmoor, the twins finally began to talk and socialize with others. They were approved to transfer to the minimum security unit at Bridgend to finish their rehabilitation they were almost ready to fully join normal society for the first time in their lives. June and Jennifer packed their meager belongings in a pair of suitcases and brought them out to the waiting minibus. They climbed aboard along with two nurse escorts. As the bus surged forward out of the Broadmoor gates, the women relaxed into their seats. Jennifer turned to her sister with a smile on her face she said, Oh, June, at long last, we're out. Then she laid her head on June's shoulder. Those were the last words Jennifer ever said to her sister. They were the last words she ever said at all. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unexplained Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help. 
This is our final episode on Jennifer and June Gibbons, the identical twins who refused to speak to anyone but each other. After committing a wave of petty crimes at age 18, the twins were committed to Broadmoor Psychiatric Hospital. Last week, we discussed Jennifer and June's bizarre games, which began early in their childhood. They attempted to be equal in every way. This meant they walked and ate in sync and only spoke to each other. Over the years, this severely affected the twins' ability to interact with the outside world. This week, we'll follow the twins through their time at Broadmoor Hospital and the devastating, fatal sacrifice they made to have a normal life. We'll consider a few different explanations for their strange habits and discuss how the behavior may have been exacerbated by institutional racism and inappropriate mental health treatment. June and Jennifer Gibbons stopped talking to outsiders at age eight. But it wasn't until they were 13 that their parents and school officials thought to address their non-communication through therapy. But counseling was ineffective as the twins were unhealthily wrapped up in each other's psyches. Part of their struggles stemmed from the fact that they were black in a predominantly white, rural Welsh village. Because of racial discrimination, the twins were bullied and didn't receive the developmental support they desperately needed. In 1981, after years of isolation, 18-year-old June and Jennifer committed a rash of petty crimes. Their delinquency culminated when the police caught them attempting to burn down a technical college. The twins pled guilty and were sent to Broadmoor Hospital, a criminal mental facility in Berkshire, England, about an hour and a half outside of London. The twins' lawyers were pleased when the judge sentenced them indefinitely. June and Jennifer were too. They had a fantasy of a Victorian rest home and rehab planted by their optimistic psychologist, Dr. William Spry. But those more familiar with the hospital were upset by the sentence. The officers at Pucklechurch Remand Center, where June and Jennifer had awaited their trial, were shocked by the length and severity of the punishment. Broadmoor was a hospital that took hardened, violent criminals, and Jennifer and June weren't thought to be dangerous. In addition, June and Jennifer were the youngest patients to ever be admitted to the notorious high-security prison. They were utterly unprepared for what they'd face when they arrived on June 20th, 1982. Jennifer threw herself into life at Broadmoor, striving to make the best of the situation. But June withdrew and turned to her old ways. She refused to answer nurses and orderlies, standing resolutely with eyes downcast. She was petrified to eat in front of the other patients. She would walk so slowly down the halls that the nurses had to pick her up and carry her. She even refused to acknowledge Jennifer. Jennifer saw this behavior as calculated sabotage. She wrote in her diary that she was sure her sister was purposefully embarrassing her in front of the staff and keeping her imprisoned. One night, Jennifer became certain that Samantha Bevan, a nurse on the ward, was plotting against her as well. 
When Samantha came into the room to send Jennifer to bed, Jennifer charged at her. Without warning, she tore at Samantha's face with her nails, screaming, You bastards! This marked a turning point for Jennifer. For years, her jealousy and paranoia had been focused on June. But now, for the first time, she attacked a stranger. The orderlies rested Jennifer to the ground and quickly sedated her. The staff then rushed her to a separate, higher-security ward. Not only was she kept under supervision, but Jennifer was suddenly separated from June. The sisters were kept apart for their entire tenure at Broadmoor. If they behaved well or talked, they would be allowed to see each other on weekends or attend co-ed social events with each other. Even with rewards like outings and chances to meet, both twins found it hard to improve their social skills in Broadmoor. While they were kept apart, the twins wouldn't eat or even respond to the guards, who they considered enemies. They often refused to take their prescribed medication as an act of defiance. As the months went on, the staff began to see June and Jennifer as insolent, willful women. When it became evident they were refusing to make any progress, the Broadmoor faculty issued an ultimatum. If they didn't talk, one of them would be sent to a different hospital in Rampton. This strategy was meant to make the twins turn on each other instead of fighting against the system. Neither twin could stand the thought of the other living in a better facility than her. Reluctantly, they agreed to take their medication and attempt therapy, but they still failed to improve. By late 1982, June and Jennifer had been patients at Broadmoor for almost a year. They'd all but abandoned their writing. They had no motivation at all, not to compose works of fiction or even their daily diaries. In an attempt to reinterest the twins in the one outlet for communication they'd excelled in, the hospital enlisted psychologist Marjorie Wallace. Marjorie was initially hired to teach June and Jennifer a creative writing class as a form of art therapy. But she soon became intrigued and heartbroken by the twins' story. Until Marjorie began working with the twins, they'd been assumed to have low IQs. Marjorie could quickly tell from their writing exercises that this wasn't the case. Marjorie traveled to their childhood home in Haverford West to find out more about their background. When she met with the twins' parents, they showed Marjorie the twins' bedroom. Marjorie was shocked to see it was filled with books and papers. Black plastic trash bags full of the women's journals littered every possible surface. Reading pages at random, Marjorie saw poetry, theatrical dialogue, and diary entries. The silent twins had always been brilliant, creative, evocative writers, but Marjorie Wallace was the first to ever notice. She knew that Broadmoor Hospital wasn't the right place for them. The twins who had written all this material were mentally ill, but not violent or psychotic. Marjorie became the twins' biggest advocate during their time in Broadmoor. She was their teacher and friend. She petitioned for the twins to be released, 
but the hospital board still believed they needed round-the-clock psychiatric care. In fact, Jennifer was diagnosed with schizophrenia, though she never exhibited the classic symptoms of auditory or visual hallucinations. Marjorie objected to the diagnosis, but she was overruled. So June and Jennifer spent 11 years institutionalized at Broadmoor Hospital. In an interview, June explained that though they eventually began talking, the board kept voting to keep them in the maximum security hospital. They wouldn't believe the twins were fit to re-enter society until 1993. That year, at age 29, the women finally convinced the administrators to release them to a minimum security facility. When they received the news that they would be transferred, the twins were less than happy. They feared they would never be normal. The twins had lived together outside before, and that had ended in disaster. They'd made great strides since then, but were they really cured? June and Jennifer talked about the issue, trying to come up with a solution. They decided that there was only one option. For either of them to have a chance at a typical life, one would have to die. The question was who? June pleaded with Jennifer. She said, you're strong. If I die, you'll get over it fast. You're a fighter. Don't die before me. Please let me die first. Jennifer disagreed. She decided that June should survive, not her. Just a few weeks before their scheduled release, she matter-of-factly told Dr. Marjorie Wallace that she was going to die soon. Marjorie believed that Jennifer was being dramatic. But then, Jennifer's health took a sudden and inexplicable turn. She grew sick. She lost a tremendous amount of weight and wasn't able to keep food down. Despite her illness, Jennifer was still excited about leaving Broadmoor on March 9, 1993. Moments after climbing onto a bus headed to the new facility, Jennifer turned to her sister. She smiled and said, Oh, June, at long last, we're out. She rested her head on June's shoulder and closed her eyes to rest. June sat back, watching the countryside go by. She didn't even notice when Jennifer slipped into a coma. After Jennifer was found unresponsive, the bus hurtled down the road to the secure unit at Bridgend. Upon arrival, Jennifer was rushed inside. She was still alive, but too unstable for the doctors to treat. They sent her by ambulance to the nearby Princess of Wales Hospital. She arrived at the emergency room at 5.30 p.m., but nothing could be done. Jennifer Gibbons, an otherwise healthy 29-year-old, passed away at 6.15 p.m. on March 9, 1993. A later autopsy showed that Jennifer died of acute myocarditis, or inflammation of the heart. This condition can be caused by anything from genetics to a thyroid disorder to poison. Normally, it isn't fatal, but in Jennifer's case, the undetected inflammation destroyed her heart muscle. 
It almost seemed like Jennifer, who'd been claiming she would die for weeks, had simply willed herself to death. The power games the twins had played all their lives had finally killed Jennifer. Next, possible explanations for Jennifer's death. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Twin sisters June and Jennifer Gibbons spent their childhoods mirroring each other, attempting to act like they were one person and refusing to speak to any outsiders. They were so close, some even speculate that 29-year-old Jennifer's death on March 9, 1993, was the culmination of their lifelong competition for control. Over the years, psychologists familiar with the case have tried to clarify the Gibbon sisters' strange behavior with little success. Even experts who knew the twins struggled to explain it. With no similar cases, it's hard to tell what drove them. Was it long-term mental illness? A failure of the healthcare system? Or could it be that June and Jennifer were fated to live this way, neither one able to lead a normal life as long as the other was by her side? Some of the twins' early school teachers thought that their bizarre manner was Jennifer's fault. One instructor even claimed that Jennifer was possessing her twin. Their teacher, Michael John, said, I've had 6,000 children go through my hands in 30 years, and I've encountered only four I felt were evil. The fourth was Jennifer. I felt that June should not be allowed to mix with her, or come under her influence. The bad one would not have been so bad had she not been able to draw strength from her twin, and the other would be normal. While extreme, this sentiment echoed what some other teachers and psychologists said about Jennifer. Anne Treharn, a speech therapist who worked with them in 1977, told psychologist Marjorie Wallace about her impressions. She said, Jennifer sat there with an expressionless gaze, but I felt her power. The thought entered my mind that June was possessed by her twin. Teachers often felt that June wanted to participate normally in conversations, but was too afraid of Jennifer to break their twin rules. They observed that Jennifer would fight with June and would become upset if her sister took any action without her permission. But was Jennifer really a pure evil being? Was she possessing June and forcing her to live a life in synchronicity with her? There's no evidence that Jennifer could control June through any sort of supernatural means. In reality, there were probably ordinary family dynamics in play, which were heightened by social factors. It's common in siblings for one to exhibit dominant behavior. This can manifest when toddlers boss around their brothers and sisters, or children throw tantrums about perceived unfairness. 
Anyone with siblings has probably experienced this firsthand. It's also normal for relatives, especially twins, to come up with their own games and languages, but usually they grow out of it. However, Jennifer and June didn't mature past their childhood habits. Jennifer was certainly the dominant of the two Gibbons twins as they were growing up, and there was little to keep her in check. She was neglected at home, where her mother Gloria had no time to devote to the twins, and at school, where the teachers mostly ignored them, since the girls were targets, not troublemakers. It's more likely Jennifer wasn't evil. She simply never received the attention and instruction to learn that her behavior was wrong. In later interviews, June told reporters that Jennifer would often tell her what to do via what she called eye language. When they were young children, Jennifer would shoot June a pointed look to command her to stay silent or move in step with her. June complied, bound by the rules of the game. But later in life, at Puckle Church and Broadmoor, June challenged those rules. She forced Jennifer to do what she wanted by walking slowly or willfully ignoring their rules. Jennifer held the upper hand in childhood, but her power began to slip as they became adults. After Jennifer died, June told Marjorie Wallace about her feelings. She said, Jennifer was tormented. She was sicker in the mind than I was. I was scared of Jennifer, scared that she would snap at my mother and other people. And yet it was I who made her insane. I still believe that. When we were together, she brought the illness out in me. We made each other ill. At the moment, I am not mentally ill. It's likely that Jennifer, June, or the both of them had an undiagnosed mental illness for most of their lives. The twins' condition was likely exacerbated by the treatment they received due to their race. As we mentioned before, Jennifer and June's behavior was not treated as a psychological issue until they were 13. Developmental psychology was not as widespread in the 1960s and 70s as it is now, and especially not in rural Wales. But if the Gibbonses had been two little white girls, it's much more likely that one of their schools would have stepped in sooner. In 2017, the Center on Poverty and Inequality at Georgetown University released a study on the treatment of black girls aged 5 to 14. They found that these girls were seen as more sexually mature and more knowledgeable about adult topics than their white peers. Study co-author Rebecca Epstein said, What we found is that adults see black girls as less innocent and less in need of protection as white girl twins of the same age. This new evidence of what we call the adultification of black girls may help explain why black girls in America are disciplined much more often and more severely than white girls across our schools and in our juvenile justice system. Their skin color may have contributed to their mistreatment by the legal and mental health systems as well. At the arson trial, the Gibbons twins' lawyers argued that they should be sent to Broadmoor Hospital. But no one had properly described the facility to the twins or their family, and they all believed it was a mental rehabilitation center 
rather than a psychiatric hospital for hardened, violent criminals. June and Jennifer lost over a decade to the hospital. Even though their advocate, Marjorie Wallace, thought the twins should be released, the board refused to let them out. In an interview, June said, Juvenile delinquents get two years in prison. We got 12 years of hell because we didn't speak. We had to work hard to get out. We went to the doctor. We said, look, they wanted us to talk. We're talking now. He said, you're not getting out. You're going to be here for 30 years. We lost hope, really. Perhaps bias led the adults in their lives to see their childhood behavior as willful, calculated action. In actuality, the Gibbons twins needed help. But no adult ever stepped in to change their dynamic, and some made the situation much worse. When he first met the 19-year-olds at Puckle Church Romance Center in 1982, psychologist Dr. William Spry was certain there was a psychological issue driving Jennifer and June to commit petty crime and arson. When he arrived and sat down in the visiting room, he was met by two unmoving statues. Neither June nor Jennifer would meet his gaze. The twins refused to answer his questions and wouldn't even react at all as he attempted to interview them. Spry left Puckle Church having learned almost nothing about the twins, but that didn't stop him from diagnosing them as psychopaths. For years after, June, Jennifer, and Dr. Marjorie Wallace believed that this was the moment that set the Gibbons twins on the path to tragedy. In their years at various special education centers and institutions, Jennifer and June's doctors often had to come up with creative ways to communicate. The twins were paralyzed with anxiety when talking face-to-face, but could speak in other ways. They'd call the staff on the phone. They communicated with their parents through notes. In Puckle Church, they were able to meet with their lawyers by calling them from the next room. June and Jennifer still had communication problems, but they could be overcome. But Dr. Spry didn't even try more than one other method of communication before diagnosing them. Many of the other mental health professionals in the Gibbons' lives were outraged with his cavalier conclusion. Tim Thomas, their counselor from Eastgate, said, They were putting a label on these children, that's what I thought they were, as psychopaths. How the hell can you decide that somebody has a mental health problem as serious as that if you don't communicate with them? Expediency. Had they been white and middle class, the outcome would have been different. Marjorie Wallace agreed saying that the twins didn't exhibit behavior consistent with what she called psychopathy. Today, this term often refers to people with antisocial personality disorder. But the twins didn't have common symptoms of ASPD, like disregarding or violating the rights of others, lack of empathy, and taking risks. June and Jennifer committed a few petty crimes, but Marjorie believed that was more in line with normal juvenile delinquency than ASPD. The twins were usually only violent towards one another, with just one instance of Jennifer attacking a nurse. 
They also lack the charm and affinity for reckless behavior that many with ASPD have. In fact, June and Jennifer were obsessed with being careful, deliberate, and unnoticed, exemplified by their slow-moving attempts to move in sync and disengage from others. June and Jennifer probably didn't suffer from ASPD, but that's not to say the twins were free from mental illness. Instead, June and Jennifer Gibbons may have suffered from a condition called folie à deux, or shared delusions. With this disorder, the twins were too entangled in each other's personalities to discern reality from their fantasy lives. Unable to disengage, their destructive, disturbed behavior inevitably turned deadly. Next, we'll dig deeper into the entangled psyches of the silent twins. Now, back to the story. In rural Haverford, West Wales in the 1970s and 80s, twins June and Jennifer Gibbons were notorious for their odd lifestyle. They were thought to be willful criminals, evil children, and psychotic individuals. And this was underscored by Jennifer's untimely death. Some thought that Jennifer was manipulating June, or that both twins were suffering from antisocial personality disorder. Those theories, however, didn't quite fall in line with the twins' actions. While June and Jennifer likely weren't psychotic or suffering from ASPD, they were undoubtedly living with mental illness. One theory of why the two twins kept up their silence is that they were dealing with a folie à deux. Folie à deux is a rare syndrome called shared psychotic disorder, in which an otherwise mentally healthy person experiences the symptoms of a close associate's mental illness. According to the researchers who published the study, Foley Adu and Delusional Disorder by Proxy in a Family, there is usually an inducer and a receiver. The inducer is the original patient, and they share their delusions with the receiver. There have been cases of couples, friends, and even whole families participating in the same warped reality. June and Jennifer were prime candidates for this syndrome. Folie à deux usually affects people in devoted relationships who live in close proximity. 50% of diagnosed patients are mother-daughter or sister-sister pairs. Judging by their history, it's theorized Jennifer was the inducer and made June share her delusion. She was the one who instigated the so-called twin game that plagued the Gibbons twins their entire lives. Driven by Jennifer, both twins became anxious, paranoid, and suspicious of everyone else. They were desperate not to be noticed, which drove them to walk incredibly slowly and not react when other people tried to engage them. Though they attempted to interact with boys they liked or other people in the outside world, as teenagers, June and Jennifer couldn't break the cycle they'd created as children. By the time they arrived at Broadmoor, their isolation began to cause breaks in reality. June told a reporter from The New Yorker that Broadmoor caused Jennifer's mental state to deteriorate. She said she became really schizophrenic in there. 
she'd hear guns going off outside her window. She kept saying quotations from the Bible to me. She accused me of destroying her life, of plotting against her. Living for so long in the institution may have adversely affected the twins' mental health over the years, worsening the folie du. Or perhaps Jennifer and June's behavior wasn't the result of internal factors, but external ones. One clue lies in their shared twin language. Another similar case may shed light on the factors that led to the sisters' communication problems and competitive games. In 1978, when June and Jennifer were first undergoing speech therapy at Eastgate, the story of eight-year-old Grace and Virginia Kennedy of San Diego made national headlines. The two twins had apparently created their own idiosyncratic language and would only communicate through it. Though English and German were spoken by their parents and they could understand both, they refused to speak either tongue. The twins called each other Poto and Cabengo. After they were enrolled in speech therapy, it was discovered that Grace and Virginia's language difficulties were partially due to neglect at home. Their parents had been told the twins were developmentally disabled and subsequently halted all schooling. The sisters never had the chance to learn English in an educational setting. Instead of a unique language, Poto and Cabengo's dialect was a rapid-fire phonetic mixture of English and German with some flourishes of their own design. In the absence of any language instruction, they created their own dialect. Once it was discovered the twins were not disabled, they were enrolled in school along with therapy and were able to learn English. June and Jennifer's twin language was similar, with its strange staccato version of English and Barbadian slang, along with some slurred sounds. But whereas white Americans Grace and Virginia received support and professional help at a young age, June and Jennifer were essentially left on their own until they were 13. By then, their habits were already deeply ingrained. Their language allowed Jennifer and June to communicate without being understood, further dividing the twins from the outside world. As the twins aged, they relied more and more on each other for companionship. Ironically, the closer they became, the harder it was for them to integrate into the wider world. They may have simply been neglected for too long. Were the silent twins of Haverford West isolated and lonely? Did they suffer from mental illness? Or was Jennifer maliciously controlling June for her own purposes? Even now, 56 years after they were born, it's incredibly hard to tell. We can't fully explain the silent twins' behavior, but it was probably a combination of factors. The twins were neglected at home, with a father who didn't help raise them and a mother who was overwhelmed. They were bullied at school and the teachers and administrators left them to flounder. Racial bias ensured that many caretakers simply ignored or dismissed the Gibbons twins' struggles. By the time they finally began speech therapy and psychotherapy, it was hard to reverse the habits they'd established. And once again, they were left without support 
when they left school at age 16. The nail in the coffin was their sentence at Broadmoor. Whereas juveniles who committed similar crimes served about two years in jail, June and Jennifer spent 11 years at a maximum security hospital among violent offenders. Jennifer would never be free. June still had big plans in the days following Jennifer's death. She told Marjorie Wallace, the future is clearer. I see myself going for long walks by the sea near my home, thinking about myself and Jennifer and the books I will write. I want people to cry because they understand a new beauty through my eyes. She felt that going on and living her life would honor Jennifer, but still that old fear of her sister remained. She added, You know, of course, Jennifer will haunt me one day. When my first ten novels are published, Jennifer will get jealous and will throw all the manuscripts about like a poltergeist. Do you remember how she used to say she would kill my babies? I'm still quite afraid of her. I think she's looking down on us and she might laugh. Without her sister, June Gibbons was never quite able to make a home for herself in the world. In one of her last interviews in 2000, the 37-year-old talked about her life. She was living in a halfway house in Haverford West, taking care of her aging parents and visiting Jennifer's grave once a week. Compared to her early years, however, her later life without her sister appears fairly uneventful. June said, It seems to me that as I get older, I don't want to write anymore. I don't see the point in writing books now. I can communicate by talking now, can't I? I stopped writing diaries way back. I'm a bit lazy now, brain dead. I can't be bothered to write books. Though June doesn't write creatively now, her words still live on in a poem carved into Jennifer's headstone. It reads, we once were two, we two made one. We no more two, through life be one. Rest in peace. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back Thursday with another episode. For more information on June and Jennifer Gibbons, amongst the many sources we used, we found Marjorie Wallace's book, The Silent Twins, and the BBC documentary, Without My Shadow, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Unexplained Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unexplained Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. See you next Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. 
Sound design by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Molly Quinlan, with writing assistance by Drew Cole, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Mm-hmm.